Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This is the Soho Radio Podcast, showcasing some of the best broadcasts from our online radio station, right from the heart of Soho, London. Across our music and culture channels, we have a wide range of shows covering every genre, along with chat shows, discussions and special broadcasts. Here is just one of our recent shows. To catch the full show, head to our Mixcloud page or listen live at SohoRadioLondon.com. That was Red Dress by Sugar Babes, or The Sugar Babes. Oh my God, I've never thought of that before. Well, um, let me know, Instagram me or something, if you if you know. I mean, they changed so many times that maybe they changed name even. But either way, I hope you enjoyed that. My, uh, my youth, I spent a lot of time dancing to that track. And if you're wondering who the hell this is, this is now Nancy with me, Nancy G. Matthews. Welcome back to today's show, which is a fabulous foray into fashion, fabric and fun <laughs> this February. So we're going to be exploring and are exploring clothes, cloth and textiles and their history. And with this idea of history in mind specifically, I'm very excited to introduce my first guest. Recently, I was lucky enough to speak to Dr. Kate Strasden, who is is a fascinating fashion historian, senior lecturer in cultural uh, studies at Falmouth University. And she's also a writer, she's a curator, and she is the author of this new book, The Dress Diary of Mrs. Anne Sykes, Secrets from a Victorian Woman's Wardrobe. And you may have actually seen this because it's been it's been uh, sort of widely covered at the moment. And I think that's wonderful because it's so deserved. Um, the book is out this week and it shares the hidden fabric of a Victorian woman's life from family and friends to industry and empire. So it's told through her unique textile scrapbook. So it's a book within a book, essentially. This book is recording an existing fabric book. In 1838, a young woman was given a diary on her wedding day collecting snippets of fabric from a range of garments, some her own, others donated by family and friends. She carefully recorded and annotated each one, creating a unique record of their lives. And her name was Mrs Anne Sykes. And then nearly 200 years later, the diary fell into the hands of Kate Strasden, a fashion historian and museum curator. And using her expertise, Strasden spent the next six years unravelling the secrets contained within the album's pages. And we find out more about this. We find out how she cracked the code and unlocked the secrets of this woman's fascinating life. And we also talk about her previous, uh, Kate's previous and ongoing work and this idea of um, public and private and navigating that in history. And also where Kate thinks fashion sits within the arts and the arts and cultural sector. Um, and much more. I mean, I was so thrilled to speak to her. It's, as I've said, a topic that I find really interesting. So, uh, yeah, enough, enough from me. Ignore me. Here's here's our chat. Hi, Kate. Thanks so much for joining me on the show. Lovely to be here. It's really nice to to chat to you. 
I'll jump in and ask for those who who may not know if you could start by talking a bit about yourself and the work that you do. I'm a dress historian, which is always it sounds a bit niche. And I know when people say, what do you do um, at parties and things? And it's always it can be a bit tumbleweed moment because um, because it is quite specific. But essentially, I teach at university. I'm senior lecturer down at Falmouth University and I teach in the Fashion and Textiles Institute. And I teach students who have come to do studio practice. So they are makers, essentially. And I teach them the cultural studies part of their degree which is the kind of history and theoretical kind of underpinnings to dress and textile practices which I absolutely love but also alongside that I write uh, about predominantly 19th century women's history is is where I've been rooted for a long time Uh, and often I've realized over the years that it's about stories of women that we don't often hear about so it's those hidden women who maybe leave their traces in museums through dress and textiles but they're not necessarily part of the the written record or if they are it's quite under-researched so yeah it's finding hidden hidden women's voices is always how I see it. And and when did your interest in in that side of things begin or can you remember a particular moment when it sort of started? Yeah, I can. I was really young when I started to be find myself completely fascinated by historic dress. I think partly it was because I always loved, I was the kid, the, the unusual kid that liked going to old houses and castles and and museums and imagining the stuff that you saw in those places, imagining people actually there. And of course, then that requires you to think about how they looked and realizing that places still had those kind of clothes just blew me away I used to collect Brookbond tea cards from the 70s that had a series on British costume that I collected avidly and things like paper dolls I was dressing I used to make them myself as well I do have some of them still and just those outlines that are really unfamiliar to us now because the, so much of that clothing doesn't relate to the way that we dress now. And yet just in, just seeing those objects and realising that they were actual lives that inhabited them just got my imagination right from a really young age. And that stayed stayed with me, really. I started volunteering in museums when I was about 18 and that was the point that I learnt more and started to go behind the scenes and see museum stores and just what was actually in them compared to what you often see on display so you see all the if you go to fashion exhibitions and you see all the amazing things that they display but then the many tens of thousands of additional things that are in storage and I just couldn't quite believe that this was all still intact and still uh, still this kind of tangible part of people's lives. I do think it's such a fascinating part of the, the de- not necessarily the domestic, but the very lived in part of history is is the one where I think a lot of one's imagination can run riot. The, you know, houses where people lived or, the, you know, there's something about the actual spaces people exist yeah. in. And, and I think with dress, it, very often the, the clothes that probably would never find their way into an exhibition because they were a bit shabby or a bit had been a bit lived in if they've got darns or if they had a stain on them and I was always thinking oh my god who darned that and what's that stain what happened you know what's the story there's a story there and and so often in museums these objects come without a provenance most of the stuff washes up without 
a story attached to it. And so you have to just kind of read what you can from the objects and and try to at least understand a bit of its story. And it was just that I found that so compelling. Well, I suppose it ties into this, actually, because we're talking about the merit of stories. And I really wanted to ask you where you feel fashion kind of sits within the broader arts and cultural sector. I think it's it's definitely finding its way more frequently now. When museums started to collect dress uh, back in the 19th century, they collected, curators then collected the best. I suppose it was that period where when you were collecting decorative arts objects, silver, ceramics, whatever it might have been, they, it, was a, it was a way of collecting the best of something. And similarly with dress, it was often that you make sure you collect the finest of a thing. And so other things from from middle and working class dress was never really a priority. So you do get, obviously, that kind of bias in museums. But I think increasingly fashion and textiles are being taken more seriously. I think for a long time, they were felt to be the sort of superficial end of of decorative arts and other art mediums generally, because and again, I think I think it's because textiles are so obvious, so often associated with with um, traditional female roles, and that you're inter- if you're interested in fashion, that somehow makes you less serious. That that isn't a really robust academic avenue of inquiry, or if you like looking going to museums and looking at textiles or dress, that that's not the same as if you're interested in going to fine to look at fine art. And I think that's taken quite a long time to break down some of those some of those stereotypes around what it is to be interested in textiles. But I think that's changing. And certainly in recent years, the biggest exhibitions in a lot of museums are the ones that have been dedicated to dress and textiles in some way. So there's definitely the appetite is out there for appreciating it in a, a scholarly or just an aesthetic way but it has taken a little while to get there. I do think it's quite weirdly gendered. That Do you think there's more importance placed on bigger, sort of more seismic moments in history, like mm. battles and things mm. that sort of are supposedly marked out as than, than the day-to-day lives? I, I often talk about this with my students because that idea of things that are made from textiles and cloth, because they might have been produced at home or in domestic spaces, even by professional dressmakers, it might have been something that they were doing more as kind of cottage industries or small, small makers. They didn't carry the same weight as someone who was a professional artist. And so it ends up being seen as a hobby. Now, I think I think our textile student probably still feel that, that it, it doesn't carry the same weight as some other kind of artistic endeavours. But yeah, it, it, it is very gendered, I think. Fashion and textiles remains a very sort of um, gendered space. I wondered if you could maybe share your thoughts on what role it has in in, in education more broadly, like how things could be taught and, and what effect it has there. Traditionally, the idea of the domestic sciences, that would be the only space that you would learn to handle or use textiles in some way, whether that meant actual sewing or whether it meant making something that has ceased to be taught. I think generally for a long time, I think mainstream education has moved back from teaching that kind of thing because it isn't valued. And I suppose because of mass manufacture, the idea that anyone would see themselves as having a career in 
something something that has become perhaps maybe to be seen as as the kind of hobbyist side of things that has definitely impacted on on the way it's valued from an education point of view but I think what's great now about students coming through now is that they are starting to realize that we can't just churn out textiles endlessly from a fast fashion perspective and that actually valuing textiles and starting to think more carefully about how we either manufacture wear acquire dispose of clothing really matters and this generation this these these kids that are coming through um sort of 17 18 19 they are they are that generation that are, are maybe starting to question that and think of different ways of doing it and that's massively important and hopefully they'll forge great new directions with it and do you think people have whether it's young people or people who want to take courses or classes as someone who shares this information um as part of the work that you do do you think people have access to this area and and how much and if not how 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 could they well there are there are new initiatives springing up all the time so for example we've started it's not it doesn't happen in very many higher education institutions in the UK but what we've got alongside our fashion and textile institute we have started to develop an archive and it's an archive that students can use so we have several thousand uh, items of textiles and clothing and they are the everyday they're the kind of things that museums wouldn't collect because they're not particularly uh, they might be damaged or they might be um they might be otherwise you know a bit shabby not particularly and museums struggle for space so it's very understandable but but we are taking those things and using them to teach so we teach them how to look at these objects how to engage with them what stories they might tell um they write essays about them and then if they are in their actual studio practice if they think well i'm i'm making something that might be beaded or i'm making something that is uh really structured in a certain way maybe i could look at an object in the archive that may, might help me with my own design or might help with my thinking about this and they can access that onto um, another project your new book which is called the dress diary of mrs ann sykes and i wanted to ask you to please introduce the book how you how you how you found it uh, this amazing discovery and then the journey you went on well i'm a lace maker so when i was in my 20s i started to make honiton lace which is a, a handmade bobbin lace that's particular to the to the part of devon i live in devon in southwest england and i started to make honiton lace and then joined a group that was predominantly older women because it's not it's not the kind of thing that many young women make or young people make and after one of the classes one of the older ladies who knew what i did for a living approached me this was in 2016 and said i'm clearing out my apartment and i've got loads of stuff my family don't want it and i don't want to throw it away i want it to go somewhere and would you like it so i went down and had this amazing afternoon with her where she talked through she had so much stuff she had boxes and boxes of dress patterns from the 1940s all the way through to the 1980s that she'd collected she had garments she had textiles she had must at some point have bought practically the whole contents of an edwardian haberdashery there were just rolls and rolls of trimmings and amazing things she had a trunk at the bottom of her bed and right at the bottom she got this 
parcel out and she said oh I forgot I had this and she explained to me that she had been the wardrobe mistress at the National Theatre in the 1960s and when she was working there she had a young guy who was um, I think maybe an apprentice or an intern and he came to her one Monday morning and said oh I was I was at Camden Market on at the weekend and I found this and paid a few pence for it and gave it to her and then when she unwrapped it to show me I was just absolutely blown away I knew immediately when I saw it I thought wow this is something quite special so basically it was um a big album that was covered in pink silk but it was frayed at the bottom and you could tell immediately that it had some age to it and as I opened it I could see it was just full of textiles that had been cut out and stuck onto the pages with captions above it, written, handwritten captions. She didn't know anything about it other than that it had been bought on Camden Market and there was no other kind of clue as to where it might have come from or anything about the the maker. And she gave it to me and it was a, a treasure. And I just spent the next few years gradually trying to interpret it and figure out where it might have come from and say that was the very beginning of it really it just was anonymous there was nothing to identify it and it became that was the start of this kind of particular quest and I was really curious what the experience must have been finding her and discovering so much and do you feel almost as if you know Mrs Anne Sykes. There's only one place in the book. So there's over 2,000 swatches in this book and they range in date from the mid-1830s up up to about 1875. And there's only one in all of those 2,000 swatches where the maker actually identified herself. And so she wrote above this one particular caption because all the captions are written in the third person. So they might say something like um, Emma Taylor, 1836 or um, Mrs. Gregg, 1843. And then just once in the whole book, she wrote uh, um, Anne Sykes dress, May 1840. And then just next to it, in the tiniest writing, it says the first dress I wore in Singapore. And so it's the, it was the only time that she acknowledged herself. And that's really what unlocked the whole thing. Because once I knew that Anne Sykes was the creator of the book um, I could track back then because there was a swatch of fabric that actually said Anne Sykes and Adam Sykes wedding dress 1838 and once I had that information I could then go to census records and, and track them down and that's what I did and once you have once you've managed to unlock one one person and one name uh, with with things like census records then it becomes possible to trace so many more and what I discovered on finding them was that other names associated with them in census records were also names that were in the book and so it started to uh, really spiral outwards and I was able to trace probably out of over 100 names in the book I was able to discover the identities of about probably 40 people Every discovery was just amazing and it did become like this network gradually emerging. And I wrote this, I started to write this, well, in January 2020, at which point I thought this is going to be great. I can go to all these archives and I can uh, I can visit places and 
And then come March 2020, when we locked down, it then became a different kind of quest because it came, it became an escape from the pandemic in a way, because I was writing this at a time when I was homeschooling my kids and uh, teaching online, which was a peculiar kind of awfulness. And so writing, finding Anne Sykes and her friends and family became this escape from our weird pandemic world so that on its own I'm trying to avoid the word journey because then I sound like it's I'm on the x factor or something but um it did become like this amazing journey yeah it is a journey it is a journey of discovery I think this but I think there's there's no other way to say it yeah no it is it is It, it was a journey it was a journey from discovering Anne Sykes as a person and then tracking her life so she, it turns out that she was from Lancashire and she had been born uh, as the daughter of a cotton spinner. So completely, I mean, textiles were her world. And then married Adam, who was a merchant, which took her in an entirely different direction, which is why she ended up in Singapore for seven years. And I was able to just, through these tiny swatches of cloth, I could sort of rebuild her life and the lives of, the people around her and it really isn't about friendships and family and friends this book it's that network rather than autographs she was collecting memories of people's dresses and cloth is very poignant in that way I'm sure we can all think of garments that we've owned where if we had a swatch of it we could see it and remember exactly when we wore it or what that day was like or a particular time of our life and that's what this is this is her memorializing her family and friends yeah my mum always um has a a saying with you know it's a bit like if these walls could talk but what that dress has seen you know and and it is if you think about the events major events in your life a lot of the time you do know what you're wearing and you do or you at least can remember it when you look at a particular item of clothing so it is it is so associated I was curious in terms of the the many, many different swatches and fabrics, if there's a particular one that that stuck with you or that you'd like to talk about. Obviously, that first swatch where I realised who she was, that's probably the most important one. I think the one that, for me, made me stop in my tracks for a start, but also uh, just seemed so completely unexpected was there's a swatch of a pirate flag in the in the book and so about 60 pages in at the top of one page is this piece of red flannel that doesn't look very compared to all of the other swatches which are silks and cottons and gorgeous colors and uh, amazing patterns this piece of red flannel which is a bit moth-eaten around the edges doesn't look like anything very much and yet the caption was just it just blew me away because it it says at the top part of the pirate flag given me by the admiral 1845 and I just couldn't kind of fathom first of all how she came to have a piece of pirate flag at that point I didn't know about her travels to Singapore but once I did then I was able to establish I I did some searching around and discovered that there was a man called Admiral Sir Thomas Cochrane who was on anti-piracy duties around Borneo and the Strait Settlements regions and he was there in 1845 and so at some point she met him in Singapore and he gave her a piece of of pirate flag and it's quite 
uh, red red flags, red pirate flags were quite they're pretty horrific, really, because red meant no quarter given. It meant no mercy shown. So if you see a pirate ship coming towards you that raises a red flag at that time, it was a pretty terrifying ordeal. But it's what I love is it's on the same page. So beneath it is a piece of blue velvet that says pair of Adam's slippers for his birthday in 1843. So on the one hand, you have this kind of mad clue to this to the to the place that they were living and how unusual it was and what kind of world they were inhabiting on an international scale and then you also have Adam's birthday slippers and I love that and just the that world whilst I was sitting at my desk in Devon reading about Singapore in the 1840s where there were frequent tiger attacks and there was no uh, no real infrastructure for certain Europeans that had come out to live there. And it was, they they were, they were obviously the sort of interlopers. They were taking over the some of the boggy swampland around the harbour, and it was becoming this big centre of trade. But what that must have been like for somebody who had grown up in this mill town in Lancashire. And also the distance. I think that was the other thing. It took them four months to get there on ship. And so she's far far away from home and those swatches came to be much more important I think I think often people were sending her swatches from home that she then pasted into the book and that becomes also your link to the people that you love who were so far away I mean further than we can even imagine now because of travel and not being able to text somebody and you have to write letters that take months to get there with the nature of this book, we've talked about the idea of this intimacy and these intimate stories and, and the realities of people's lives. And where do you think the balance lies with that, with, with history generally? It's really interesting. I do. I am mindful of that. And I sometimes think, what would she think if, if she knew that I was picking over the details of her life? Would she be, would she be really happy that somebody had remembered her or thought it? interesting enough to tell or would she find it an invasion I've had this before I did research I did before into the wardrobe of Queen Alexandra who was a very prominent public figure as the daughter-in-law of Queen Victoria but also very private she certainly had her public and private faces and I did research into that her surviving garments and I quite often thought she would probably hate this because she had maintained she'd got all of her garments that were sort of public facing and for to see the world, but she probably would have hated me looking at her nightgowns and her handkerchiefs and all of those sorts of more domestic private garments. And so, yeah, it's, it's really interesting. I think with Anne Sykes, they didn't have children and her, after she died, her effects went to her brother's families and I think maybe one of her sister-in-laws must have kept the volume. And then at some point, unknown now, it was disposed of and found its way down to London. But the fact that she kept it, and it wasn't like a private diary as such, she never wrote any sort of, her captions are very, very sparse. So I like to think that she would appreciate that they were considered worth talking about. Um, which they certainly are because it's just beautiful. I think especially in this case, there's this, the documentation, the care, the meticulousness, this care that's been taken 
I like to think that she would be quite be very happy with this. I think so. And I think it's another it's an example, really, of the kind of because it is very beautiful, particularly the early years. She was very thoughtful about how she cut the pieces out and how she she often cuts them in sort of octagon shapes. And they're placed on the page really carefully. And then she writes beautifully over them. So small sometimes that I had to get a magnifying glass to read the captions. They're tiny. So it was carefully done. And it's the kind of thing where she probably didn't have much opportunity to be artistic in the way that we now would think, well, I can I can do that. I can be, um, I can have a platform for something that I like to do. And the fact that it ended up on a flea market stall many years later suggests that that kind of thing may not have been valued as it should have been at the time. And so the fact that it is being given its due value now as the sort of artistic endeavour it was, I think is really important. So many of that, I think that's why maybe not many of these survive because I don't think it's that it's rare because there weren't many of them. I think it's rare because people haven't kept them. Um, and haven't really recognised that they are valuable parts of women's creative practices. And I, I actually wanted to know where the book is now. I own the book, and which I'm very fortunate to do, because it means there's still so much I'd like to find out. There's still just a wealth of um, a wealth of other research I'd like to do to find out about particular fabric types uh printed cottons are in the book are brilliant and it coincides with a period of great technological change in terms of cotton the calico printing industry and she had connections to it through family members as well and so I think there's probably mileage in trying to match up patterns with patterns in the book with some of the surviving pattern books from print works that are in places like the National Archive so I think it would be possible to um, do kind of a deep dive into that kind of thing as well so yeah I feel very fortunate to be the custodian of of the book it's because it's such a treasure and so there might there might be a sequel (laughs) and Sykes part two yeah that would be amazing and well, that ties me on to my next question, actually, because I was curious outside of this project, what else you might you have coming up or what else you're working on um, or we should we should look for? Oh, well, I mentioned um, I kind of because it's always about hidden women. So I've just written a book chapter, for example, about women mountaineers and what they what they wore in the 19th century, even though in this case there aren't objects because they never survived. They were just worn to ribbons and never made their way into museums. But this is all about they they took photographs, they did wrote memoirs, diaries, sketches. So but often they are not the women who are making the headlines. It's uh but they're there doing it. So I've always found that fascinating and I've just just been writing about that, which I loved. And I am starting to do some research into the women makers and suppliers to uh, royal women. So the research I did into Queen Alexandra, which I loved, the people that I always found most interesting in that research were the dressers and the tailors and the people making the shoes and the people who are completely nameless very often. So you have this public figure sailing forth in their Uh, amazing public wardrobes and you never hear about the person that got them dressed in the morning or the person that was uh, mending the mending the holes in the jacket or uh, 
all of those things so yes that's it's more more hidden women actually more more hidden. where can people find the chapter the chapter is not published yet but it's it's going to be coming out um coming out i think next year okay keep eyes peeled from eyes peeled for more hidden women <laughs> yeah well thank you so much Kate I've I've so enjoyed talking to you and enjoyed your book and um, my final question bittersweet is what song would you like to play out to and why? Uh, Well I um, my immediate thought was thinking back to teenage I think those teenage years where you don't know what what your path might be and and you can and you can stress about it as a teenager. And I did a lot of stress listening to things like Tori Amos and being all angsty. And and so Tori Amos' Cornflake Girl takes me right back. And if I could tell my young self, don't worry, it'll be all right. Just have faith. Uh, this would take me back to that. Let's hear it and all, all try and talk to our teenage selves. Thanks again, Kate. Thank you. Thank you.